Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I am Harriet Handel. Our series this month centers around higher education opportunities behind the walls of a prison. We've already met Eliza Cornejo, Executive Director of the Goucher Prison Education Partnership in Baltimore, Maryland. And we also got to know a former student in that very program, now finishing her BA at Goucher, Ramika Robinson Peoples. Today, we go to California to meet Jody Lewin, president of Mount Tamalpais College at San Quentin Prison, and a former student, Tommy Winfrey, who graduated from Prison University Project at San Quentin way back in 2014. Welcome to you both. It's good to have you with us. Way back in 2009, if my memory serves me correctly, my husband and I flew to California to visit our niece, Tony. She had recently lost her husband. Before seeing her, we made a stop at San Quentin Prison to sit in on a class or two run by Prison University Project. Lucky for us, we were close friends of Jody's aunt and uncle, so we were permitted to observe the program. I will never forget the wonder of listening to the men exchange ideas with the professor teaching the class, a powerful experience. Jody, your involvement started around 1999 with Prison University Project, and now you are a college president of a school embedded inside a prison. Tell us in brief about your journey, the start of Prison University Project, and how it evolved into an accredited college. But before you take us down that road, I want to mention that in 2016, President Barack Obama presented you with the National Humanities Medal. What a prestigious honor. And you were also given the Frederick Douglass Family Initiative Award for your work at San Quentin in 2018. Other recipients of that honor were Michelle Obama, Angela Davis, and Ava DuVernay. It is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Okay, your turn to talk. <laughs> Thank you, Harriet. This is really exciting to at least see you on the screen after so many years. Yes. Um, I'll tell you this story in, in brief. Um, I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley and sat down completely coincidentally next to the woman who had actually helped to start this program up in 96. And um, it was much smaller at the time, but it was, you know, it sounded really interesting to me as sort of an opportunity to work in higher ed, but also serve people who were not traditionally gaining access. Um, and I, so I started as a volunteer instructor in 1999 um, and, uh, in 2000, the fellow who had been coordinating the program announced he was leaving in a few weeks. And so sort of landed in the role very, very much by chance. Um, and in a sense, I mean, I always sort of felt like it wasn't so much that I was driving it, but I was just sort of um, shepherding it. You know, it, it, the program has always felt to me like it had a life of its own, that it had, you know, sort of like a very determined toddler or something it's just going to go where it wants to go and you know your job is to just sort of uh, keep it out of the traffic but um, 
but I, yeah, so I got very interested not only in, you know, the experience of teaching, which was tremendous, but really thinking about what could this program be if it had adequate resources. And, you know, it was very clear to me that the students in the program were extreme, exceptional and extremely dedicated from the standpoint of a teacher. It was very energizing because they were so, they were just working so hard and were so motivated and appreciative for the opportunity. Um, but so, you know, the whole process became um, just sort of like an adventure. You know, what, what could we do if we had the proper resources and if we had adequate institutional support? So, you know, we just kept growing. And, and the thing with this program is that it's, you know, San Quentin is right in the middle of the Bay Area where, the, you know, where it's literally surrounded within an hour's drive by several large, um, excellent colleges and universities. So it's extremely fertile soil for a college uh, to grow. And what basically happened was we, we went along, the program had been since its inception, an extension site of a very small college in Oakland. And so eventually what happened was we founded the prison university project originally just to provide material support. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of intended to be the fundraising arm of the college. But as the program grew and, and our staff grew, we sort of took on more and more responsibility. So if you fast forward, then in 2012, Patton was actually acquired by an online for-profit company, um, which we weren't ecstatic about. And so we began very early on to sort of try to explore alternatives, including what would it take to actually become independent? And in the early years, it was it seemed so daunting to, you know, to, to imagine becoming, you know, having our own registrar and student information systems and, um, you know, and research and evaluation division or all of that. But over time, you know, as, as, as time went on and we had more success with fundraising and just got to know the field and developed more goals, um, we really started to seem more realizable. And then what ended up happening actually was that this, you know, the, the company that had acquired patent uh, announced in about 2000, I think, 18, that they were closing it. So we really had to decide. We really needed a plan. And, and, and at that point, we just thought, we're too old to be an extension site. You know, it's time to, to take that leap. Um, but in the beginning, it was really about becoming autonomous and being able to just innovate and grow as unencumbered as possible. But once we became independent, we realized there were a whole lot of other advantages to being independent, you know, um, just in terms of really having the opportunity to engage with the larger world of higher ed and, and other things like that. But from the very beginning, the program was a general ed, a liberal arts, associate of arts degree. Um, it started out, as I said, quite small today, well, at least not when, when COVID is not turning everything upside down, we have about 300 students enrolled. And the college is, um, the, the sole requirement is a high school diploma or a GD. So we're not screening students based on age, length of sentence, commitment offense, time left to serve. We don't care about any of that. We really just care that the student shows up, you know, committed and ready. We charge no fees or tuition. So it's also um, completely free. We, we'll lend students the textbooks, give them the school supplies. Um, but, and then each student will take an assessment in both math and writing. And um, about 90% of students will place into the developmental math and writing classes in the beginning. Um, yeah, and then they take their time and they go, they take as long as they need 
uh, to work towards completion of the associate's degree. But the average student will spend about a year in college prep classes hmm. before they go into the credit class. You, you just uh, said uh, it's completely free, but what uh, we were talking uh, to the woman at, uh, who heads up the Goucher program, and she was saying their program is about 8000 per student uh, per year. What, what's your cost, just to compare? I don't even know exactly. We're, the, the, the beauty of it is that because we're not charging fees or tuition, you know, our budget is based on running the school. We're not oh. really calculating per capita. And a, lot of, uh, and a lot of what we do goes beyond the delivery of instruction. You know, we do a lot in the realm of communications and storytelling, um, also doing what we can to sort of facilitate the civic engagement of our students while they're inside and after they're released. Um, you know, so there are a lot of, and as I mentioned, you know, research and evaluation, student assessment, and, and really figuring out how do you know your students are learning? You know, there's a lot yeah. that goes on uh, beyond the actual delivery of instructions. So it's a little bit hard to calculate. Right, I understand. Um, how different uh, is your, very different, I'm sure, your position when you were with a Prison University Project and now as president of a college, there must be huge differences in what you're doing. You know, in many ways, it's really just a continuation. Um, what what changed is the infrastructure. You know, we, we, we've sort of developed the infrastructure of the college. So the, there are more divisions that I'm responsible for or that somebody who I supervise is responsible for. Um, you know, building the infrastructure to support student information systems. In, in a sense, it became uh, um, more complex on the business side, you could I say, see. but then also programmatically, you know, I, I keep mentioning data and evaluation. Um, that's an area that we that we've really, although we've been working on measuring the impact of participation in the program for many years, that's becoming um, more sort of elaborate. You know, our goals are becoming more ambitious. We want to we want to kind of generate more knowledge and information about, you know, not only what is the impact of participation in the program over time, but why, right? And then we want to also be able to capture everything we're doing and disseminate it to other practitioners, kind of be almost like a teacher's college for other institutions. So it's, it's not so much the, the core programmatic operations that have changed. It's really more everything going on around it. And then obviously, we really, I mean, another area where we finally are doing a tremendous amount of work, I think Tommy might be happy to hear, is in the realm of access to technology and library resources. And so that's required additional staffing, but also a real budget. And so part of what's happened, and that was also a requirement of accreditation, which is sort of exciting, right? That, that accreditation put a certain kind of pressure on us to up our game in a lot of areas, which is really exciting. But it also meant that it also has, you know, dramatically increased our budget. So a lot of more and more, I mean, a lot of my job was always fundraising, but oh, oh. more and more of it is fundraising today. Now technology, and I, I will get to you, uh, Tommy. Um, technology wise, I know from wide experience having taught inside a men's maximum security prison as a volunteer, uh, they are not allowed access to the internet. Is that also true at Mount Tam? It is true, but there are increasingly workarounds for that. Oh. You know, in the early years when I started volunteering, um, there was an absolute prohibition on 
you know, inmate access to technology or to computers inside with very limited exceptions related to their work, uh, you know, their, their job assignments. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a lot of, I think on the side of folks running the prison and in corrections generally, a lot of fear about access to technology, which sometimes had to do with having a less nuanced understanding of what technology can and can't do or what a given computer can and can't do. But very often it was really political. It was really, you know, they're having had so many experiences over the years of themselves getting in trouble because somebody did something with a computer uh, that reflected poorly on the institution right. or somehow criminal. But what, what I, th I think there are a couple of things that happened. I think that the collective knowledge and understanding of technology has improved somewhat. I think more and more political pressure has um, sort of been generated around preparing people for school and work upon release. And it's become more and more clear to everybody, you cannot prepare someone for sex successful reentry without allowing them access to technology while they're incarcerated. And I also think, frankly, that the, that the, the pandemic had a huge impact on uh, corrections and their understanding of what technology can do, but also what the consequences are of not allowing technology, of not having technological infrastructure in place in the event of a prolonged emergency like the pandemic was and has been. And I think all of that together has really combined. We also have a really excellent warden at San Quentin uh, today and over the last few years have had more and more cooperation you know, folks in positions of authority at the institution who genuinely want to see us build a better and better program. They want to see us succeed. That's that's having a huge impact as well. That, that was a question I was going to ask you is the, uh, I also asked uh, the woman at Couchers, what, what's the attitude uh, about um, giving the men this kind of opportunity? And, and in her case, she said it was very positive. What about you is that generally the case it really varies there uh -huh. is i think right now like i mentioned within the leadership of san quentin a tremendous amount of support and and even excitement when we became independent and announced our accreditation you know we had a, a gala in celebration a few months later you know and the warden and his whole executive team came to the gala you know i mean um, they I think, are really taking pride in what's happening there. Sure. Um, on the other hand, there are other folks working in the institution who um, I think are more inclined to keep it to themselves today than they were years ago, but who um, object as a matter of principle. Uh, one thing you often hear is, you know, I didn't get a free college education. Right. Kids didn't get a free college education. And these guys killed someone and they're going to, you know, that line. Yeah. Um, and then you also have people who just believe that prison should be a site of unmitigated suffering. Right. And anything that brings people happiness or makes them feel lucky enrages them. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, you really, it's the whole spectrum. But I would yeah. say that the culture has evolved so that people are less comfortable expressing those attitudes openly or directly than they once were. That's good. Okay, so Tommy, your turn. Um, tell us why you wanted to be a student in the Prison University Project when you did time at San Quentin, and how long were you at San Quentin? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on the 
podcast, Harriet. I appreciate oh, you're it. Welcome. Uh, so I, I was at. I'll take it in pieces. The question. Okay, sure. Quentin from 2010 to, to 2017, uh, when I eventually paroled. Uh, so about seven and a half years, I was there. My journey started with higher education back around 2008 in another prison. Um, at that time, uh, California had just put the R on CDCR, which stands for California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations. Previously, it was California Department of Corrections. But with that R, um, it was a conservative governor, and he did a lot of budget slashing, Arnold Schwarzenegger at the time. And I was in a college program that had been operating uh, with, uh, it was a correspondence program and had been operating with a staff as someone who supervised the program and her responsibilities were cut around 2009. Uh, at that time, I reached out, I wrote about 20 letters to colleges all around the country and saying, this is my situation. I wanna keep going to college. I have no money, but you know, what can you do? Luckily, a, a, a small little college in San Diego County professor wrote back to me and she allowed me to take a few courses, but that was pretty much it. Um, in the CDCR, every year inmate has an annual review where they review your case factors, see if something's changed, possibly put you up for transfer. Uh, at that point, around 2010, I had started advocating for myself to go to San Quentin. I heard about a small college program where the men at San Quentin could uh, attend college for free. Professors came from all kinds of universities like Stanford and Berkeley, volunteered their time. So I was full of energy to start my uh, education, higher education, and I advocated for myself and made it to San Quentin. Uh, when I got to San Quentin, the program was pretty small and they had a waiting list. So I had to get on the waiting list. And uh, But from that point forward, when I started uh, around 2000, the end of 10, 2010, the beginning of 2011 with Prison University Project. Um, yeah, my, my world had just started opening up. I was exposed in the classroom. It was a whole different feeling than the correspondence courses I had been taking. It, it was night and day. Hmm. Um, when, uh, not when, but, uh, you know, what was it like in terms of the other men who weren't involved in the program. Did they look at you with kind of a fisheye or, you know, what was their attitude, those who didn't want to participate in the program? Well, you know, San Quentin is a pretty unique place. I spent 20 years incarcerated. I've been to several different prisons. And while I was in those prisons, I made relationships with other guys and end up, you know, moving around, not seeing them again. And then at San Quentin, I ran into a lot of individuals I knew from my past uh, and I'll say this, uh, San Quentin, uh, San Quentin, the prison university project now Mount Tam is really the heart and soul of the community, uh, for the guys in blue. A lot of people get to San Quentin and are, um, involved maybe in prison politics or just the culture of prisons in California in general. And they're exposed to so many men that they've been doing time with for decades at this point oftentimes and see like these men have started to change their lives and this is a positive influence in it. So I don't think you, I necessarily got many like 
strange looks, but um, I think I think you know going to college is is something hard to do, whether you're um, incarcerated or non-incarcerated as an adult um, that is living life. So I think people see that with admiration, and those walls start to um, come down, especially when you have a population that's probably about a quarter of the uh, main line at San Quentin that is attending the university at any given time. Hmm. Oh, that's great. What, what classes uh, at that time when you entered um, prison university project, were you interested in taking? Um, at the time I had been pursuing uh, through correspondence courses when I first entered the program, more of a business um, approach to higher education that was quickly <laughs> curtailed at, at um, Patton University because they did not have business courses at the time. I don't know if something's changed at this point, but it was, a you know, kind of focused on liberal arts. And I really got into write, writing and I pursued writing, um, creative writing. And, you know, I eventually went on to win Pen America's Prison Writing Contest and Did Memoir in really? 2016. Wow. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. That's I, a very high honor, uh, Pen, the Pen uh, Contest for people in prison. Thank you. And I, I really credit my teachers at the university for um, laying a foundation to let me explore my life deeper through writing. That's wonderful. Do you still, are you still writing? Uh, this these days it's more memos and uh, emails, uh, not too many uh, actually essays anymore. But uh, I do enjoy writing still. Oh, that's good. Um, all right, so you graduated um, from San Diego State, and what was your major at uh, that college? Yeah, San Diego State. I pursued criminal justice degree and graduated and. I believe it was 2020 with my bachelor's 2020? right in the middle of the pandemic. Oh boy. Yeah. Wow. That's now why, um, why did you choose that particular area? You know, uh, criminal justice wasn't my first choice. Um, I was more interested in computer science, but I quickly learned that uh, I needed a lot more math and a lot to go hmm. backwards almost. And so I kind of fell into criminal justice, but I started working in policy and juvenile justice. Hmm. And I kind of, you know, I have the lived experience. I know what the justice system, the experience of the justice system is from the lived side, but I want to explore more of the academic side and just be a voice in that, that, that field because I often feel like uh, higher education, you have a lot of people that study something, but don't necessarily have the background or the lived experience in that subject, which kind of, you know, adds a different dimension to it. Right. Well, we are almost out of time and we still have so much more to talk about. And both of you have indicated that you would um, uh, return next time for another podcast. So um, I hope you will do that. And uh, we'll talk much, much more about higher education and, uh, you know, a little bit more about the college, the, the new Mount Tam College. So I do appreciate that you both uh, rose early in California to be with us today. And uh, I encourage my listeners to tune in again to Pursuing Justice. And we'll talk some more about 
a college in prison. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.